This week on the In-Depth Podcast, I sit down with Jim Beheim, the former Syracuse coach just retired following the 2023 season after being one of the faces of college basketball since taking over the Orange in 1976. When we met up with the legendary coach in upstate New York back in 2011, Beheim told us how he could get the most out of his players. They say, well, I'm not having fun. Well, at practice, it's not fun and expresses his undying loyalty to Syracuse. I had a lot of people call me, a lot of, of interest. I, I've never considered leaving Syracuse at any time. He also opens up about a challenging time in his life. It's kind of strange you right up when you hear that word cancer. And what it was like to accomplish the ultimate goal. You're going to win a lot of big games that mean a lot. They're important. Uh, but there's, there's nothing like uh, a national championship game. But we get started with his early days in coaching. You once said, quote, I don't know if I could have made it as an NBA player, but I knew I could make it as a coach. <laughs> Why did you feel that way? Well, I definitely knew that I was a borderline NBA player. I had one opportunity to go up after I'd been out of college for a year, but I'd already gotten involved in coaching. and. Was that with the Chicago Bulls? Yeah, or? I had a, an opportunity in Chicago that I didn't make it, but the next year after playing Detroit. in the Eastern League, I had a chance to go to Detroit. Uh, I knew the coach. I played for the coach in the Eastern League, Paul Seymour. Uh, and so reunite with Dave Bing. And, and be with Bing, but uh, they had three almost all pro guards, and you know, Jimmy Walker and Howard Comeyes and Dave Bing. I knew I wasn't going to play in front of those guys and I'd already started coaching at Syracuse and felt comfortable with what I was doing. Um, I really felt at that point in time I had to make a decision, a big, a big decision because uh, I really wanted to play and liked to play but I just felt that coaching was uh, the best opportunity for me. I didn't envision it would turn out quite as, as, as good as it has in terms of being an assistant and being able to become the head coach here. Uh, you really, I mean, you didn't think that would? No, I don't, I didn't think that way. I thought I'd be an assistant coach and then, you know, see what happens. But um, the coach here was young and, you know, figured to coach another, you know, 20 years. So I didn't think anything about being an assistant and getting the Syracuse coaching job. I, uh, thought a little bit about, you know, starting at another school, going to a smaller school, but it just broke that uh, Coach Danforth left here just when I was thinking about uh, trying to find another job, a head coaching job, and the Syracuse job opened up just uh, really within a week of when I would have had to make a decision. So uh, it, it's just one of those things that turned out as good as it possibly could and sometimes you have to be lucky a little bit. And you interviewed I think at the University mm -hmm. of Rochester that morning yeah. before uh, you were interviewing with the people making the decision for the head coaching job at SU. Explain how you got the job and sort of the leverage you employed. Well I don't know it was probably not the smart thing to do at the time but I, I knew that I could probably get the Rochester job and I, the Syracuse people were wavering and I was the assistant coach. I'd recruited the players here and uh, had the blessing of the players and the former coach and uh, they were wavering about you know who they're going to bring in and I said look I'm, I'm going to Rochester tomorrow if, if I don't if you don't think I can do the job here I don't think it's a job that should be opened up you know I played here I recruited all the players here I helped us 
coach a team to get that got to the Final Four for the first time at Syracuse in a long, long time. And uh, I felt that I should have the job, and I just kind of walked out of the room. And, and they, I think two out of three agreed that I should be the, <laughs> when be you the coach. Were, when you were walking out of the room, did you think in the back of your mind this you were going to get the job? I didn't. No, I, I really wasn't sure. I, I just felt that uh, I had made my case and that I should you know, be the head coach. And, um, I knew that I could go to Rochester, and uh, it was a good job, you know, Division Three. But it was a, a good job that uh, they talked about going Division One, and um, which never happened. But they they had talked about it. Uh, but the head of the uh, selection committee came down within a couple minutes and said, "Oh, you know, you we're gonna we're gonna go with you." And and, uh, and it really needed to be that way because uh, we had recruiting and right issue, issues at that time. We had to get right on the road. That was a huge, the next two weeks determined the, the, the spring recruiting at that time. And we were recruiting Roosevelt Bowie and Lewis Orr, two guys who we ended up getting that year who just made our program. Without them, we would have struggled. Uh, for a couple of years, and with them, we, you know, we won 100 games in four years, which at that time was a lot of games. Right. And, uh, so the, the decision had to be made quickly, and I knew a two or three wait, week uh, wait would destroy recruiting and uh, put the program in a bad situation. And that's really why I pressed the issue so much. Not so much that that I was worried I wouldn't get the job if it took two weeks. But two weeks would have been too long in terms of the recruiting world at that stage. I want to talk to you about uh, just some of your coaching talent and skills. D Dave Bing says you have a photographic memory. <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah. I have good recall for some reason. I can recall a lot of things. Uh, the problem is most of it's the bad plays and the bad games, but... Uh, oh, come on, I'm sure there's more than that. And some of the good ones, but I, I have good recall of, of, of events in the past. And uh, How does it help you? Well, I think everything you can remember, everything you've learned, if you, can, if you can't remember it, isn't going to help you too much. But if you can remember events and how things went and how different things were handled, uh, I think it certainly can help you uh, as you go forward. Um, I, I think one of the keys to coaching is that you are getting better every year. I'm learning things as I go through the Olympics. We learn things talking to Jason Kidd, learn things from Mike D'Antoni and Nate McMillan, uh, how Mike Krzyzewski prepares. All those things help you become better. If you think you have all the answers, it's about the time you're done. You need to be done. What do you think makes a successful coach? You know, there's a lot of different ways to coach. There's a lot of different personalities, a lot of different methods. Uh, but I think uh, you have to deal, be able to deal with your players in a fair way you know, that they understand and that they accept. Uh, you can't please them all, but you have to, they have to feel you're, you're fair and, and even-handed with them and what you do. And I think you have to have a consistent approach to, to how you do things. And uh, within that consistency, it's important uh, to be flexible as a coach. You, you, you don't, it's just, it's not all black and white. There, there's a, a lot of gray in coaching and how you handle players and uh, how, you, how you coach your team. Um, I, I remember when I was starting coaching, I'd recommend a certain scouting report when we, and, and the game started and we were gonna do this. And about a minute into the game, I said to the head coach, 
this isn't work, we need to do this. And it was a, a pretty radical change within a minute or two. And the, fortunately, the coach listened, believed in what I you know, was doing. And he kind of looked at me a little funny, but he, he saw the adjustment, made the adjustment. And it, and it was, fortunately for me, it was successful in that situation. So you have to be able to be flexible, as, as I think, in the long run. Uh, to be successful as a coach. How hard will you push your players? You have to push hard. You have to push hard. There's no coach that's successful that doesn't push his players hard. Now, different methods. Wh you know, what's the hardest well, you think you've ever pushed? Well, uh, I, I yell, I get on, I get going, I get upset. Uh, there's some screaming and yelling. Not as much as when I was younger. I think I've learned better ways to do it, maybe. But you still have to uh, push. You, you, you have to push. No one works as hard as they can all the time. They ju it's just not human nature. And the difficult thing with players is they always think they're working hard, but you see them every day and you see their good days when they're really pushing and their days when they're not. And it's your job to push them during those days. And uh, it's not easy and it's not something that players are going to embrace. Uh, they're going to think you're going too far, but you have to do that if you're going to be successful. A lot of people mix something up. They say, well, I'm not having fun. Well, at practice, it's not fun. I mean, I mean it, it can be satisfying. But when you're running for two and a half hours and somebody's on you to go harder and play better, play smarter, um, I don't think you can characterize that as fun. It's hard work. And uh, uh, winning the games is, is the fun part, but you don't get there unless you go through the hard work part. And uh, that's something I think that people sometimes don't understand. It's not a lot of fun uh, to get up and go to practice at 8 o'clock Saturday morning and push yourself for two and a half hours and come right back Sunday and practice Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. It's not a lot of fun, but the fun is in the winning, and the only way you can get to that is to go through the hard part. So fall 2001, you go to the doctor to be treated for an enlarged prostate and you find out you're told you have cancer. What do you recall from that moment being told? Well, you remember the moment. Believe, trust me. Uh, in fact, I'd been to the doctor and he called me on the phone to tell me. And it was, it's, it's, it's kind of strange you write up when you hear that word cancer. Um, and it, it, the good news right away was it was a small uh, sample within the prostate, which after you do the research, as I had done quite a bit and continue to do a lot of research about it, um, that's a pretty good case scenario. If you're going to have cancer in the prostate, it's isolated, it's in a small area. So you do feel good about that. But, you know, it's still... Uh, a major surgery. It's uh, right during basketball season. You know you're going to kind of try to take off when you can get it in and miss the fewest number of games, which you probably shouldn't be thinking that way, but right. that's what coaches think. And I found a slot where I'd only missed two or three games and uh, found out who the best 
surgeon was and, and went to St. Louis to see Dr. Catalano and um, got the surgery done and uh, you know when it's contained it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good outcome I mean you're, you're pretty much cancer free and you're not going to have a problem with it uh, obviously the surgery's tough uh, there are side effects but I, I was able to come through everything good and uh, get back to coaching within a, a very short period of time, probably too soon. Uh, we didn't play very well and I wanted to get back and got back out there in about 15 days uh, oh, wow. uh, to, to, to coach. But, uh, you know, it's, it's scary, but uh, the more you find out about prostate cancer and the more you educate people about it, if you catch it early, um, very curable. Um, and, and with very good long-term results. And uh, that, that's what applied in my case, and uh, I, was, I was very lucky. Your mom passed away from leukemia in her 50s. Your father passed away from prostate cancer in his 60s. Of those experiences, and also having had cancer yourself, what was the most emotionally draining of the three for well, you? Well, they're all <laughs> difficult. When my mom was going through, that was a, a very, very hard time. She was so young and uh, came quickly and, and uh, just, you know, was something that was ended too quickly and it was a difficult time. My father was, uh, was he was older, uh, it was a little bit easier, but uh, cancer is, is, uh, is difficult for all of us and we all have been touched by it. Um, one of the reasons we fought so hard uh, to raise money for Coaches Versus Cancer is because we've lost so many people that are close to us, not only my parents, but in the coaching profession, um, and my best friend. Uh, I lost to cancer uh, a couple years ago, and it, it's just been very, it's a very difficult disease. And uh, the fact that you beat it is great, but the fact that so many other people don't beat it um, really uh, makes you want to do as much as you can to, to help do something uh, to fight cancer. And you've made yourself very open to other people who have gone through similar situations and most people have been touched by cancer uh, somehow. What's that dialogue like between you and the people who will reach out to you? Well, I get a lot of calls, I still do, and uh, I talk to them about my experience and, and uh, how I think there's too much uh, fear and darkness related to cancer and with prostate cancer specifically, which is what I deal with, uh, there's a lot of hope uh, with good treatment uh, that things are gonna be perfectly normal and you're gonna be fine. And early detection is the key. We talk about that all the time. But I try to talk to people about what the outcomes are, what, what you're gonna go through, what you're facing. Um, that it, it looks difficult, it looks uh, like a dark path, but it's, it's really something that you can get through in a short period, relatively short period of time and get back to full speed uh, within a couple months and with a, a great chance of a very good outcome. You mentioned coaches versus cancer. How, how did you get involved in that and how much money did you ultimately end up raising? Well, Norm Stewart started Coach Versus Cancer and, and I got involved right away and uh, we've been 
very active for 15 years now. We we raised uh, you know well over five million dollars, but I think it's has to make you feel great. It feel it's good, but I, I feel better that I've helped bring other coaches in. You know, the Philadelphia coaches came in, Notre Dame, Mike Bray came in, Wisconsin's come in, Iowa has come in, Mark Few has done an unbelievable job at Gonzaga, uh, raising money, and, and so we've been able to get a lot of other coaches involved. So that um, it's it's now three or four million dollars every year that we can raise through Coaches Versus Cancer and in awareness because I, I really believe coaches have that platform. People know you're working on this and they see it and they hear your message of early detection, early treatment. That's the best way to beat cancer. So I, I think that's what makes me feel good about it. Uh, the calls I get from people who got tested, who found out they had cancer, who got it taken care of, and are now gonna be healthy. And those are the, the good things that you think about. I wanna take you back to your younger days. Uh, your father, how would you describe him? You know, he was a lot like me. Uh, you know, a stubborn, tough, uh, competitive guy. Uh, I'm lucky because I got my mother's side and mixed in there and she was very nice, very uh, kind of, even though she was competitive, she was a good competitor. If she lost, she was, she was okay about it. And so I think I got a little bit of that to balance out my father who was, it would win at all costs. You know, he wanted to win. When we, every game we ever played, you know, it was to the, for the blood, you know, it was not for fun. We never played whether it was cards or, you know, a kid's game or ping pong or pool or golf, we played to win. And when we played ping pong, he beat me when we started out 21 to 2, 21 to 1. 21 to 3. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I read somewhere your, your best friend uh, remembers when you guys were six or seven watching you and your father play ping pong. Oh, where, yeah. I mean, he would nail the ball oh, as, yeah. as hard as he could yeah. so you could barely yeah. touch it. No, he, would, he scored every point. You know, usually a parent is going to let you win a couple points, but never did. And then, it, you know, eventually it got to 21 to 10 and 21 to 15. And one day I beat him, he put the racket down, and that was it. We didn't really? play again. <laughs> really? <laughs> a true story. What was that like for you when you he finally beat him? He just walked out, and that was it. And I said, okay. And we did that in every sport. I beat him in everything, but it took, it took a long time. <laughs> and he had uh, he limit, he was limited some in the physical, physical activities bit. he could do because he was shot by his brother accidentally right. when he was younger, and I guess the bullet was lodged in his, uh, his spine, in his back. near his spine, but very competitive, oh, as yeah. you say. I saw a quote that you gave somewhere where you said, uh, when I shoot hoops with my four-year-old, I try to beat him because my father tried to beat me. <laughs> <laughs> How true is It's that? a little true. I'm a little bit uh, more forgiving. Uh, I, I can let them score and let them win a little bit too. But uh, uh, I think it was good for me. I think it was something that made me what I am today because it was always hard. I was skinny. I wasn't that strong. Um, you know, I, I made it through high school. I was a walk-on in college. Um, I wasn't physical. I had to work and earn it. And if I hadn't had that mentality, I, I'm sure I would have given up someplace along the line. It was difficult. And uh, so, so you think absent of having a father oh, as yeah. tough as he was, uh, it, it would have prevented you from having some of the success. Oh, you had? absolutely. I don't have any doubt about it. I would have never 
become the player I was or the competitor that I, I, I am to, to get to this point, I, I don't think it ever would have happened. Absolutely not. Tell about the setup at your parents' home when you were growing up due to your father's business. Well, you know, we were in the funeral business and I worked in it. I, I delivered flowers for, for funerals and we, we actually ran the ambulance service. So we would go out, take people to the hospital because uh, the local funeral director in a small town ran the ambulance. So we would take pregnant ladies to the hospital. One was giving birth there. I was, I was 14, I think, at the time. That was a a wake-up call. You actually well, were right dispatched there. to like, oh, drive yeah. that? Well, I was with them to help carry. I didn't drive. I was only 14, 15, and you know, I would carry. Uh, what do you remember from that? It was uh, interesting. We picked up you know, dead bodies, of course, and brought them back in, and we lived in half of the funeral home. The other half was, uh, was the funeral home, and we lived in the other half. So it was, uh, was an interesting experience. And, Probably one that made me really try hard to be a good coach because I didn't really want to go home and be a funeral director. <laughs> I, I understand you were asked to drive the hearse on a When I occasion. got older, I, I drove uh, the flowers and the hearse on occasion. As a teenager though, right? I mean, yeah. what kind of looks would you get when you're a teenager <laughs> sitting at a stoplight well, driving a hearse? you didn't sit too much. You were moving pretty much, so. I mostly carried. I didn't do a lot of driving. I was mostly carrying. <laughs> Tell about uh, inviting now uh, Hall of Famer, then Syracuse University uh, basketball teammate oh, and your roommate Dave Bing sure. over for Thanksgiving dinner. Well, he was. I think he was aware that we, 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 well, I lived in a funeral home, but it's a little different. The reality is a little different. Okay. The, the, the uh, kitchen door opens right into the uh, embalming room where they prepare, of course, the body. So I think that was a little <laughs> what kind of reaction. A little reaction say? there, but uh, we got through it all. He was all, always pranking you, wasn't he? Or yeah. something and so. he, Dave was a great prankster. He liked to get in closets and people's rooms and wait until they came in, sat down, were there for a few minutes, and then jump out and scare the heck out of him. But uh, Dave was good at that, the best. He, we had one kid that was a little nervous on the floor, and he'd get him about once a week. And it was just, really? Yeah, just hysterical. You passed up partial scholarship offers from other programs to walk on to the Syracuse University men's basketball team, a team that I think had won something like 14 games the previous three seasons. Yeah. Why do it? Well, I thought Syracuse was a big school. It was a could be a you know it was a, we just Syracuse had won the national championship in football, so you know it's potential. They we built Manly brand new facility, and I really thought I was a good enough player to play at Syracuse, even though I wouldn't have a scholarship initially. Uh, so I think you know being the best player in my area, you know I thought well you know I I should be able to play there, and that's going to be the best place, and I can win a full scholarship. The other schools, Colgate or someplace like that, I'd, I'd have a partial scholarship, but you never get a full scholarship. So, um, and, and I, I really underestimated how good Syracuse was going to be and the type of players that were coming in here. I mean, not just Dave Bing, but the best player in Long Island, Norm Goldsmith, the best player in New Jersey, two of the best players in New York City. So I, I kind of a little bit underestimated how tough it was going to be and, and, it, and it was very difficult but uh, you know I was good enough to get a scholarship after one year which was uh, which was huge I mean it really was but uh, 
and, and then be able to play. But it was a gamble. You know, looking back on it now, I wouldn't advise somebody to do what I did. Really? I, I, no, I wouldn't. I'd say you, you go to the other school, you'll, you're sure you'll play there. Although at the time, Colgate was better than Syracuse, really, in, in all honesty. Um, so I, I thought I had a, a, an easier opportunity at Syracuse than there really was. Fred Lewis was a great recruiter. He brought in a great recruiting class backed it up with another great recruiting class. Uh, so it was more, more difficult than I thought, but it turned out, turned out very good. What do you recall from the first time you moved out of your parents' home back when? <laughs> Moving into a dormitory? Sure. Uh, it was uh, different, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of good to be on your own, but it was, you know, I was from a small town. And I'm, I had a graduating class of 70, and I had 82 people on my freshman floor. And because uh, I wasn't on scholarship, I didn't room with, I didn't have basketball players okay. around me. So I had uh, you know, just student body guys, all freshmen, and it was, you know, it took me two days to register for classes. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. How about what was involved the first time you purchased a home for yourself? Well, yeah, I know, again, every time I had apartments and, you know, I didn't have a clue about anything like that. I just, you know, I was so involved in, in coaching basketball and thinking about basketball. When you're young, when you start out in coaching, you don't care where you're living, you don't care what your bed's like or what furniture you have or, or anything. How about the favorite feature of your home today? I, probably the only thing is the television. I mean, I just, you know, that's about all I know about it. <laughs> you know, it's the only event that I had any participation in. My wife fixed the entire house and inside, outside, and everything about, about it. And uh, I learned early that that's something you should stay out of. That's, your, your wife does that. Don't have any suggestions. Just agree to whatever is said. It took me a long time to learn that lesson, but that's the lesson. Yes, that looks good. Yes. That's a good idea. What do you think about this? Whatever you think. That's the way you respond to those. Don't, and do not have an idea, because it will not, unless it's the right idea, you're in trouble. <laughs> I want to take you back to a moment that you'd probably rather forget. Uh, 1987 uh, national title mm -hmm. game uh, versus Indiana. Mm -hmm. How well do you recall Everything. the final like 10 seconds well, of that game? I remember it all. I remember it all. We had. Could you take me through what you remember? Well, we controlled the game. We had a great opportunity to win. We had a six point lead. We had two or three open shots when we had an eight point lead that we were in and out on, and they came down and scored. We had a couple free throws we missed. And, you know, we just played a great game. And Indiana, you know, they hung in there and they deserved to win because they made the plays at the end. But, um, you know, we, we had a really golden opportunity to win the national championship. We really did. And um, when they scored with about five or six seconds to go, we only had one timeout left. And, you know, we, we, we really didn't have options. Uh, we played Georgia in the uh, in in the regional in 96 to get to the final four in the semis and we had the same thing happen they scored was six seconds ago we had two timeouts so we were able to throw the ball at half court take another timeout and then make a good play Indiana we had to throw it long and we just didn't complete it and uh, it, it was a, a very difficult loss uh, uh, Keith Smart not only made the last shot but he made three or four other great plays at the end of that game he he, he 
by himself really won the game for Indiana. And uh, we just couldn't make a play at the end. There was probably seven or eight things that could have, we could have done or could have made a play and it just, you know, didn't go our way. And uh, you end up losing a heartbreaker. And when you get that close to a national championship, uh, that was our first time. And, you know, even though we weren't favored, it, you know, you get that close. Um, it, it took 16 years to get over that game until 2003 when we won in New Orleans where we had lost in 87. Um, that's the first time that that 87 game got out of my mind. Really? First time. Took 16 years. And so the final score of that 87 game was 74-73 uh, mm -hmm. Indiana. Did you ever watch tape that game? You know, I waited a long time. I, I, I saw a couple highlights by accident on tape, but I never really watched the whole game. I, I ended up watching different parts of it at different times. But usually, my, my philosophy has always been when you lose the last game of the year, I usually walk away. Because, oh, okay. you know, you look at it and you say, well, we could have done this. You know, usually when you lose a game, you look at it, the film right away to say, okay, we, let's fix this, we can fix that. When it's the last game of the year, there's nothing to fix. It's over. And so I, I'm very reluctant to watch that last game of the year uh, again. To what extent was there ever a point you doubted that you would actually win a national title? Not, not that you could, but that you would. Well, I, I think there's always that doubt. I mean, it's difficult to do. You know, we had a great chance in 87. 96, we got there. I think Kentucky was better than us, you know, but we played well. We had a chance. There was a couple other years, 90, 89, I thought we, were, we could have gotten there and won it. You know, lost close games. Um, but you, you worry about whether you're going to get there. And it is important to win. I mean, uh, until you get there, everybody kind of says, well, I'm, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> but the reality is you're not happy if you don't win a national championship. If you're in a, in a situation at college where you have a team that can get to the Final Four, uh, then you feel uh, you wouldn't be uh, happy if you didn't, have, didn't win at least one national championship. That 2003 national championship season, uh, Carmelo Anthony. What did you most respect about him? You know, that he never thought, of, he, you know, he probably way, way back deep in his mind knew he was going to be out of here in one year, the way the season was progressing, but he never thought about it. He really, he really didn't. He thought about winning the national championship, and he focused on that. He didn't try to score points. He just tried to play basketball. And I remember, I think it was the Oklahoma state game he was having a bad game we were winning he was just when we won the game he was happy as could be a lot of guys if they're thinking about the pros knowing there's pro scouts sitting there would be uh, i didn't have a good game to, he he didn't care he just wanted to win the game and in fact he he didn't play great in the tournament until we got to the finals the last two games when we got to texas i mean he just took us on his back because I, I thought texas was a great team but carmelo was i mean he played the best game of the year. Now, for a freshman to go out there in the semifinals of the national championship and play his best game of the year, that's hard. That's unusual. You think they're going to be a little nervous. And then against Kansas in the final, he played even better against a great team. We beat two great teams to win the national championship. And uh, with a, really our two best players were freshmen. And that's, that's hard to do. Um, I sometimes think back on that uh, is how difficult it was 
to win a national championship that particular year with the two freshman guys being the key guys on our team. Uh, it was a great accomplishment for those kids. And he says regardless of what he ever accomplishes in the NBA, winning that national championship will be the highlight of his career. How, how about the fondest memory for you of that national championship season? You know, I mean, when you finally win it, there's just, there's no feeling to quite describe it because, you know, you, you don't know if you're ever going to win a national championship. And certainly in that particular one, you know, there was a, a lot of doubt that we we're going to win a national championship that year. Uh, so, you know, we weren't rated preseason. We struggled during the season at times. Uh, we lost at Rutgers. And, uh, you know, we had some tough games. And, you know, but we got it going at the end of the year. and. Uh, the, the players believe more than anybody I've ever been around once we got going that they were going to win. We were down 25-8 to eight against Oklahoma State, a very good Oklahoma State team. And our players never had any fear. They never doubted that they could win that game. That was the toughest game that we had. We had an unbelievable comeback in that game. So I think just the belief that the players had uh, was was uh, was was tremendous. To what extent would that be your most satisfying moment of your career? Well, today? it was. It, it is. I mean, that's that's what you're in it to do. Uh, you're going to win a lot of big games. There's a lot of good games that you win. Regular season games that you you win coming back from down 20 uh, that mean a lot. They're important. Uh, but there's there's nothing like uh, a national championship game. Tell about some of the letters you received following that championship victory. Well, it was a lot of letters, a lot of phone calls. So, you know, diehard Syracuse fans who yeah, any that really stick out to you. You know, you just a couple guys, uh, three or four guys got together and they've been Syracuse fans for 30 years and they were together that night and you know it's like this is it. <laughs> this is the happiest moment of our lives, you know, that kind of thing, which I don't know if it should be that big, but uh, uh, it, it was good for our fans. We, we have great fans. I mean, uh, you know, we, we're a town of 200,000 people. We have 33,000 people come to a basketball game with no parking. Uh, those, are, those are pretty good fans. I want to take you back to those uh, 2008 games in China. You said after having been through them, you know what it must have been like to travel with the Beatles. <laughs> uh, what, what was it like? Well, you know, it really was not, I guess, as bad as the original Dream Team, but it was, you know, obviously in China, basketball is huge. And we first time we, we arrived in China, I mean, there were just people running alongside the bus. Did and, it take you back a little? Uh, no, it was good, you know, that's all good stuff. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, they, they love basketball in China, everywhere you go. I mean, they're, they're interested in the game. And uh, it was probably one place in the world that we were the home team all the way. I mean, the, we had the, the crowds with us in China every game. I mean, even when, I think even when we played China, uh, it was, uh, you know, Kobe is big and LeBron, obviously, they're two big guys over there. And the fans love those guys. And uh, we had great support. And uh, I think that helps you. I mean, uh, fan support always helps you no matter what. We had a great team and probably didn't need that much support, but uh, it was nice to have the fans with us in China. And people forget 1.3, 1.4 billion people, many, <laughs> many times the size of the U.S. Uh, Coach Case spoke about the experience of coaching the U.S. national team. It's the best 
coaching experience he's ever had. You spoke about how it really moved you as well. What about it made it so impactful well, for both of you? Well, I was surprised by how good the players were. How not, not, not how talented they were, we knew that, but how well they worked together, how much they uh, they bought into everything that Coach uh, talked about. I mean, they, they were early for meetings, they were early for the bus, they stayed late for practice, they came in extra, uh, worked out on their own. Um, the pros get things very quickly. You know, in college you teach a kid a couple things a week, maybe. Uh, in the NBA with these guys, you can teach them two or three things in 15 minutes and they pick it up real really? quick. They, they understand it, the different ways you're going to guard something, the way you're going to execute on offense, how you, you may change, make a, a big change. Why do you think that is? Well, they play 100 games a year. You know, college kids, we're just getting them. They're, they're, they're coming out. They play 20, 30 games a year. Uh, pro guys, they've been in the NBA four or five years. They played five, 600 games of pro basketball and all through college and high school. So they just, their IQ, their basketball IQ is very high. And you're talking about the best of the best uh, on our team. So uh, not just athletically, but I think uh, intellect, I think uh, cerebral part of the game, they understood the game. They, they have huge basketball IQs. So you show them things, they pick them up right away. And, uh, but but the, the way they wanted to play together, you get a Dwayne Wade saying, I'll, I'll come off the bench, don't worry about it. Darren Williams, you know, come, I'll, I'll come in. Chris Paul, you know, when you need me, I'll come in and play. Uh, we've had that right through uh, the Olympics and the World Championship teams. Uh, great players willing to say, oh, you know, just use me, you know, when you can. Um, they don't get a lot of shots. They don't, no complaints. Nobody say, it w people forget this was a huge comeback for the United States. Right. When we, we were getting beat pretty regularly, consistently. Uh, I, I remember when we first started out, the other teams, they didn't think they'd have any problem with us. And, uh, because uh, they just did not had a problem. Which is State. remarkable to think considering who's on the team. But the, re the past record reflected that. They had very little respect for us coming into the Olympics in 08. I mean, uh, we gained some respect back in the World Championship. Even though we lost, we, we won a lot of games by a lot of points. So we gained some respect back. But they still didn't think we could win the Olympics. And then I, I think even going into the World Championship, uh, I don't think they really thought uh, this time we had a young team, whether they would win. And uh, so I think we've proved a little bit to the world, the rest of the world, uh, but the world's gotten better. I mean, these teams are good, they, they're motivated. Uh, Spain has eight, seven, eight NBA players on their team, and they play together for a long time. But it's, it's been a great experience, coaching the best players uh, who really want to be there and who really focus in for 30 days and, and being the best team in the world, um, it's, a, it's a great, been a great experience. How about your fondest singular memory from the Olympics with uh, LeBron, Kobe, and Carmelo? Well, I think that, you know, we had won every game so easily that when we got to the finals and we're playing Spain, it got down to a four-point game, and uh, Kobe made a big play, and then uh, Dwayne Wade made a big play, and I think that's that was the, those were the best memories because... I mean, was there anything, like, away from the court, though, no, just, I like, mean, in interaction? You know, I think about just... I think just about 
the, the games, you know. The, you, you focus so much in 30 days on winning. And if you don't win, you, you're talking about abject failure. Even though you win every game getting to the finals by 40 points, if you don't win the gold medal, it's a total failure. So you're so keyed into winning that gold medal game uh, that nothing else really matters. I mean, when you look at, uh, I, I know having my kids there and looking at the experience of, you know, my 10-year-olds are is sitting in having lunch with Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, and, and my eight-year-old twins are there. Yeah, I don't even think they, they just didn't even think of it as a big deal. I, I think looking back on it someday, they're going to think it was a pretty big deal. But uh, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the same room. And uh, those experiences are, are just unbelievable uh, experiences to share with your family and then the Olympic family. Uh, and the women's team, they were great. I mean, another gold medal winning women's team, they were so good, you know, to, take, you know, talking to uh, our families and, and just the, having the opportunity to be there with those, uh, with those women was a great experience. Um, and the whole thing uh, is, a, is a, when you're a basketball coach and you get to coach the best players in the world and you get to live it every day for a 30-day period, and that's all you're really thinking about. It's an experience you can't match. There's really no equal to it, and it was a great, great thing to be a part of. I want to take you back to 1992. The NCAA's Infractions Committee ends up putting the Syracuse University men's basketball team on probation for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, a one-year suspension from postseason play is levied due to violations they'd found dating back to like 1984. Looking back on that, what would you say you learned from that whole experience? Well, the, the violations were in little things here and there, but they added up. And, right. And that's, you know, what, what that was about. Uh, we were one of the few teams, the last teams, to be taken out of the tournament for that type of violation. And they, they stopped taking teams out after that. Uh, it was a crushing blow. Um, but it was just one of those things when you look back at it, um, you know, our kids, uh, didn't get a lot of money, you know, like one kid got a $20 discount on something, another kid stayed overnight at somebody's house when it snowed and they couldn't get home. That's a violation. Right. Um, there was a lot of stuff like that that, you know, we, we, we got our players and, and tried to isolate them more from the community in that situation. There was nothing egregious. It was just a number of little things that uh, that added up. and. You know, we had to, to pay that price. It was a very heavy price, a steep price. And, uh, you know, we had to, to get through uh, uh, a long, prolonged investigation, which hurt you in recruiting and hurt you, uh, hurt you for years. And uh, we were able to, to work through that and overcome it. But it was a, a difficult time, a difficult lesson. And of course, everybody has their opinion following an incident like that. I know Dick Vitale thought the punishment was appropriate, but then you have like Sports Illustrated saying it was a slap on the wrist and you should have been out as coach. Oh, no, nobody thought that. I never saw that at okay. any time or at all. And I didn't hear Dick Vitale say that. Oh, right. No, he, he and, didn't say uh, that. I was saying Sports Packer, Illustrated. Billy Packer actually thought it was way excessive 
punishment because they normally didn't take teams out of the tournament. There was no recruiting edge. It was uh, it was extra benefits on campus, and it wasn't you know big things. It wasn't right. cars and things. But uh, was there ever a time you thought people, your job was? No, there was most okay. people thought it was excessive. No coaches were involved in this stuff. It was stuff that, as an athletic department, we should have overseen better. And that was the criticism that we didn't, uh, as an athletic department, oversee uh, the student athletes and what their interaction was in the community. And uh, when you looked at the detail, it was very little, very small amounts, but it was enough that the uh, NCAA deemed it was significant and we went through that. But there was never a point in time the coaches were, I didn't even go to the hearing. They, they didn't ask for the coach to come to the hearing because it was more an athletic department issue. It had nothing to do with uh, coaching tenure or anything like that. There's always talk of the media scrutiny being intense in the large markets like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Syracuse is obviously a, a small market, but Syracuse University men's basketball team is really the only show <laughs> in town. So, I mean, how would you compare the scrutiny from a, a, a large market team to that of your team in Syracuse? Well, there's, there's pluses and minuses. If you're in New York City and you want to go to dinner, you can you can be the most well-known coach in the world. You can still go to dinner in New York where nobody knows you. Uh, you can't do that in Syracuse. Uh, it's different, you know. You after the as the years go along, you you become accustomed to to what your job is and and uh, what the all these outside influences are, and eventually, probably after 30 years or so, uh, it doesn't bother you so much <laughs> about what's going on, and you just focus on your team and uh, and get ready. That doesn't mean you you like criticism and. I might react to it. I might be say something. I, I, I enjoy reacting to the media. I think that's kind of the fun part of it. People think I don't like the media. It's not really true. I actually like the vast majority of people I deal with in the media I, I like. They're guys I really like. Very few that I don't like. I might not like something somebody says, and it might be a good friend of mine. But. Uh, uh, and so I might react to it. And that is something worth touching on because you do get a bit of a bad rap for, you, you know, when you'll call somebody out for something they said or wrote, sometimes you can come off as a bit yeah. of a you-know-what, but what people fail to point out is that you're open to giving your number to members of the media and you almost always return uh, a media member's I call. Return this, this I return every call unless it somehow gets lost in the system. But uh, right. So I mean, you, no, you I, don't sometimes get... I come out. I'm a little too harsh. You know, I, I don't mean to to be quite that harsh. But uh, yeah, I mean, I like to react. If somebody says, I'll react to it, and, and then I move on. And my only criticism of the media would be that uh, the media cannot move on. If you criticize them, they live with it for the rest of their life, and they you hold it in the back of their mind, and they want to get back at you someday. And uh, it's just the way it is, and I, I realize that. It's, it's reality. I'll get upset with something you say or somebody writes, and I'll make my point, and then I'm, I move on. It's over. You know, We'll go to the next phase. There's no grudge. It's the same way you coach. I get mad at players. I mean, I get really mad at some of my best players. I get mad at them and then the next day I've completely forgotten about it. And uh, you move on. That's important. 
Thanks for listening to my chat with Jim Beheim. For more from our interview at my alma mater, including the time he crashed Rick Pitino's wedding, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger.